Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you today from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Coming up on the program, BBC correspondent Nick Bryant, who says journalists choose their presidential story and the most entertaining always wins out. Barack Obama was more interesting than Hillary Clinton. We decided, I think, collectively as a, as a journalistic community that the first African-American president would be more interesting. And Kayla Walquist from The Guardian, who thinks after all the social media angst over Victoria's second wave of covid It's time for journalists to reflect. A lot of that is, as you say, hyper-partisan shouting, not interested in the other perspective, but there is a section of it which is legitimate criticism, which is legitimate concern, which journalists ought to be listening to and ought to be addressing because I don't think that we've been, I would never say that our industry has been perfect at this. Well, British Prime Minister Harold Wilson once famously said, a week is a long time in politics. Imagine what Wilson would say if he had to live through 2020 or, heaven forbid, spend a week on social media. It's actually only a week ago that we were talking about the first presidential debate. Since then, Trump has attacked the media again, been forced to half-heartedly denounce white supremacists, and he's also been in and notoriously out of hospital with COVID-19 topping the pop charts in political banality by staging one of the most disturbing photo ops in recent memory. A week is a very long time in politics. But this edition, we look at two very different COVID-19-related stories involving the media. The first is how journalists doing their job covering the second wave in Victoria have put them on a collision course with political vigilantes on social media The second is how the media have covered Donald Trump's COVID-19 infection and his attempts to play not just the tough guy, but to also downplay COVID-19, putting his election chances and his image above the interests of the nation. While these stories are very different in many ways, they both show journalists attempting to cover the unfolding COVID-19 pandemic seriously, without fear or favour, and always holding truth to power. Joining us today is Kayla Walquist, who is a Walkley Award-winning reporter at The Guardian Australia, and Nick Bryant, BBC correspondent based in New York and author of many a tome, but his latest is very on point at the moment, When America Stopped Being Great. So that is well worth a read. Kayla Walquist and Nick Bryant, welcome to Fourth Estate. Let's start our discussion with Victoria and its lockdown. The second lockdown has played out in our media and social media in many varied ways, and it must be said very differently to the national lockdown earlier this year. State rivalries have depressingly re-emerged and political rivalries have also returned re-energised. And whilst there has been humour and with that empathy on social media, there's also been something way more strident, entrenched political warfare on all sides. Every day during the second lockdown, Dan Andrews has fronted the media and the media for its part have asked questions, hundreds of them. And it's become a target for many on social media with a focus on conspiracy where the media are seen to be out to get Dan Andrews and even engaging in fake news. Hashtag I stand with Dan on Twitter has had over 275,000 posts and we know there are almost certainly no bots. 
On the other side of the ledger, hashtag dictator Dan has had some 108,000 tweets. The end result is a febrile and toxic environment and journalists are finding themselves not just drawn in but often the targets for the mob's anger. Michaela, I'll start with you. Victoria is hopefully in the final stages of its lockdown, but the lockdown for this second wave has not brought out we're all in this together spirit, has it? No, it hasn't. Um, and I think a key difference between the second wave, well, there's, there's sort of two big differences between the second wave and, and the first wave in Australia. Um, the first is that it's just in Melbourne, really. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, the ability to sort of, there was already a bit of um, sense in some reporting from other states of, you know, keep Melburnians out and border closures and sort of a, a bit of a stigmatisation of, of, of Victoria and of Melbourne as being this sort of place filled with disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is that, uh, and the government's own, uh, the Victorian government's own inquiries found this, um, 99% of all the cases can be traced back to breaches in hotel quarantine. So they can be traced back to the failure of a government program. And that creates a very different environment. Uh, it creates, on the one hand, a lot of anger towards um, the Victorian government for allowing this to, well, the perception is that they allowed it to happen. Obviously, they didn't intend for it to happen. Um, and on the other hand, from people who were still embodying the spirit of the first part of the coronavirus wave, which was quite a sort of bipartisan across the political spectrum. We're all in this together. We're all supporting each other. You know, this is no time for politics. People who'd hung on to that sort of sense mm-hmm. as we entered the second wave were really sort of feeling quite personally attacked by these other people who were now saying, actually, this one, this one in particular is the government's fault. Mm. But, I mean, what's interesting is how we've seen this play out on social media and indeed in the media, the Australian's Rachel Baxendale, she's really copped the brunt of the attacks on journalists in Victoria on social media. The Twitter pylon has been actually quite hard to swallow at times. Um, some of that is hyperpartisan, some of it's personal and threatening. Kayla, you know, is it just that she's from News Corp? I don't believe it's just that she's from News Corp, although it's certainly not not that she's from News Corp. I would say, you know, maybe about 60% of it is just because she's from News Corp and it wouldn't matter what her personal reporting was. Um, There are a number of stories that happened that she reported on around June which were quite controversial and have since um, the the department has since said are not true, particularly around the, you know, linking the second wave to um, the Black Lives Matter protest which happened in Melbourne in June which we, um, DHHS has said, was not a transmission site, linking the outbreak in the public housing towers to that Black Lives Matter protest because some people who'd attended the protest also lived in the towers. But that sort of causal link hasn't been made out in the epidemiology or at least not in the publicly released epidemiology. So there was already a a bit of a feeling that this reporting was um, based on on News Corp's political positioning around the Black Lives Matter protest. So she had a target on her back in that sense. There was already, yeah, there was already sort of a sense that the reporting was politicised in that particular way. But that has meant that a lot of the reporting that she's done since then, which I don't think has necessarily been politicised, I think it's quite legitimate to criticise the government. And a lot of the questions that she has been asking in the daily press conferences have been 
you know, quite reasonable ones about about sources of cases and number of cases among healthcare workers and things that we need to know about sort of outbreak dimensions. They're questions that epidemiologists are asking as well. But mm. because she is sort of persistently asking questions um, and she is sort of, uh, she has become a voice that's been identified in the daily press conferences. Daniel Andrews, the Premier, when he will respond to her, will often use her name, um, probably I think a bit more often than he does with some other journalists. Her voice is recognisable. She, um, when I spoke to her for an article I wrote about this, did say that she has been told by politicians on, on both sides of politics that she has quite an annoying style and she didn't find that she sort of said that if your job is to question people in power, they're probably going to find you annoying and I don't really find that to be, a, you know, that's not necessarily a problem. That's interesting that you mentioned that Dan Andrews picks her out by voice and, and names her probably more often than he does other journalists because that's sounding kind of a little bit Trumpian there, Nick, because the president who you spend much of your time uh, covering uh, does exactly that, doesn't he? He picks on, he picks out individual journalists. Well, he has a running battle with the press, and he has been particularly critical of a Reuters journalist, who is one of the sort of tight White House pool, a guy called Jeff Mason, used to be the head of the White House Correspondents Association, uh, for wearing a mask and refusing to take it off mm. when he's asked questions. And Donald Trump said, you're trying to be politically correct. At one stage, there was another press conference that took place on the North Lawn of the White House, which is very rare. They use that sort of portico on the north lawn um and again he sort of criticized jeff mason for not wearing a mask yeah i mean there are individual reporters that trump does have these kind of battles with uh, one of them is jim acosta of cnn he has become a kind of protagonist in this sort of on ongoing battle between the the press corps and the president and and yeah i mean what has emerged from the trump years is you know quite a few stars have emerged from the White House pool. People who, you know, weren't that well known before the Trump presidency have actually become quite prominent actors in it. Yeah. Uh, one of the other similarities, I think, is in, Trump also used to hold the, the in the early part, the early days of COVID, the daily media conferences. Dan Andrew has done it unrelentingly ever since the, the, the second wave began. I wonder to what extent both of you think that that has played into the anger that we see on social media towards towards journalists. Nick, what do you think it's to, what, what, do you, what impact do you think that had in the United States? Well, it depends which United States you occupy and inhabit. I mean, if you're in the pro-Trump bit, obviously, the tough questioning from people like Jim Acosta, from people like Jonathan Carl, who's the chief White House correspondent for ABC News, who, you know, basically asked Donald Trump, why did you lie to the American people after the revelations of the Bob Woodward book? And the president was heard on tape saying, I deliberately played this down. Yeah. Um, so obviously they get a lot of flack from, you know, the pro-Trump people on social media and they get a lot of support from the people who don't like Trump. So, you know, it's very polarised. Yeah. And I think what's telling about this whole crisis in America is it's revealed this, you know, difficulty at the moment in national life that there isn't an agreed-upon set of facts. And that's been hugely problematic. Uh, people don't trust the president, uh, but a lot of the president's supporters don't trust the press. 
No. And, of course, the, the president is fueling that at the moment, isn't he, even just today in coming out and saying uh, that, um, uh, that you know, China is, it's China's fault, uh, you know, I'm going, I'm going to give Regeneron free to everybody soon, no vaccine till after the election. Um, he, he kind of muddies, he constantly, that's his modus operandi, obviously, but he's constantly muddying the water and 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 that has a a, a kind of uh, a pole, a, you know, a, an even deeper polarizing effect on on people. Yeah, I mean, what we saw from the White House tonight was almost like a Viagra advertisement, wasn't it? Without yeah, the kind incredible. of advice to check with your physician beforehand, and that the the kind of disclaimers at the end of these adverts, which you see all the time in American television, advertising all sorts of drugs, you know. The side effects, and we don't know what the side effects of Regeneron are because it's still in clinical trials and it uh, hasn't been given FDA approval yet. Donald Trump got it on a what's called a compassionate waiver. I, I think every time the president speaks, it's like a Rorschach's test. And it's like those ink blocks that tell you about your psychological state. Uh, this tells you about the, your political state. Um, you look at events like the president's return to the White House the other night, uh, that extraordinary made-for-television homecoming. You look at the video he delivered tonight, and how you react to them locates where you are politically. Are you in Donald Trump's America, or are you in the, the America, America that you're removing from office? Mm. And, Carol, what, what what impact do you think that uh, Andrew's daily appearances um, have made and contributed to the anger that we see? Look, I think a lot of what um, what Nick said can apply to what's happening, what we're seeing in Victoria as well. I do think it's important to make explicitly clear that I don't think Daniel Andrews is really anything like Donald Trump. He's not lying to the public. He's not lying to the press. He isn't as forthcoming with detail as reporters would like him to be, mm. um, but he's not misleading people. He's just... Uh, sort of the repeated line is more just we'll deal with this problem and then we'll get you the answers to those questions, you know, in a week, in a month, at the end of the inquiry, which, um, you know, there's a debate about whether journalists should sit, just sit tight and wait for that or there's a debate about whether as this information is in the public interest it should come out now. And obviously I think as most journalists we, we sit on the second half, a lot of the public sits on the first half. But I do think the fact that uh, Daniel Andrews has quite a measured and calm tone um, quite a sort of almost paternal tone and he will stand up every day and tell people calmly. And I have to say at the height of this wave, it was probably deeply distressing to him and, and quite distressing to watch him have to stand up and say, you know, a number of people have died and list them off individually and give his personal condolences to the families. And I think that a lot of people sort of... Um, developed a lot of affection for both him and Brett Sutton, the Chief Health Officer, during that period because they seemed to be um, personally affected but kind of like stoically soldiering through it, which was kind of considered to be a comforting thing. Mm. Um, and people could get their information straight from him. And if what you wanted was to be comforted and if what you wanted was to be reassured that the um, Victorian health system and the Victorian government was doing its best and was going to uh, get this under control, then listening directly to the Premier is how you got that information. And there was quite a lot of information in those press conferences. Again, it's not, I don't think it's at, at all, uh, it's not all the same as listening to a Trump press conference where you could be, you know, misled five times in the same press conference. It's not at all at that level. Um, 
but there is a, there was certainly a growing sense as we get further and further through the second wave and particularly as the cases um started to ease but as the restrictions continue to be quite severe in melbourne we've had we no longer have ha- but we did have a curfew we had a one hour daily exercise limit those things are fairly restrictive to live under um and there was increased questioning um in in particularly the last month or six weeks of well, what's the justification for this? When we so, but val- and, valid, and valid questioning at that. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly when we start to get cases down to the level that New South Wales has had for months, but New South Wales hasn't been under these restrictions. There are going to be questions asked saying, yeah. well, how can New South Wales cope with this number of cases and not lock down? And we can't. So, Nick, I wonder, you know, given what Kayla has just said about the fear and anxiety in, in, in Victoria, and, and which has obviously contributed to the rhetoric and the anger towards journalists in the US is is it just because the president fuels these attacks almost daily and and partially as a result of the, that the public has become more partisan as a result or is it is there more to it if you look at it through the prism of covid is there a degree of uncertainty and fear in the um, in in the united states that is fueling this kind of you know anger towards the media look i think for many years now you know government hasn't been trusted in the way that it used to be trusted, and faith in government to perform well in these situations and to function well in these situations has definitely declined. So there's a a lack of faith in in government, and you know if you look at the polling, there's there's also a lack of faith in journalism as well. Um, you know both institutions have taken a reputational hit. And not just during the Trump years, but in the run-up to it. Um, and I think it shows so many of the sort of long-term media trends that we've seen, the fragmentation of the media, the fact that the US networks and the major newspapers, the Post and the New York Times, mm-hmm. aren't necessarily the gatekeepers of news anymore. I mean, if this had happened sort of 25 years ago, you know, they would have controlled a lot of the information that was getting to the American people. They don't have that control anymore the internet obviously has bypassed the traditional gatekeepers and there aren't any gates anymore and and so people get information from so many different sources whether it's fox news whether it's breitbart whether it's you know facebook whether it's whatever um and so much information and misinformation is swirling around i mean we haven't only had a pandemic we've had an infodemic yeah. And that's been a huge problem throughout this crisis. Yeah, it certainly has. Do you think that also that people are wanting more positive, non-combative coverage of, of, of the crisis, of the pandemic? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I think a lot of American people would like to have a far less combative politics. Mm. And I think they would probably, uh, as a corollary of that, want a lot less fearsome press. Um, you know, it has been... A running battle right from the off. I mean, you remember within 24 hours of Donald Trump taking the oath of office, Sean Spicer had stepped into the briefing room. He was the White House press secretary at that time and harangued the press without taking any questions and then leaving afterwards about the crowd size at the uh, at the inaugural. And then, of course, Donald Trump went over to the CIA headquarters. He stood in front of the memorial wall there, each star signifying a CIA life lost, and he harangued the press. He just took aim at the Fourth Estate uh, immediately, haranguing them as, as fake news. So this battle has been you know, raging uh, ever since the, the first hours of the Trump administration. Would the American people like to see a different kind of policy and a different sort of dialogue? 
I'm sure they would. Mm-hmm. Although it has to be said at the same time, they find him rather entertaining, I'm assuming. Yeah, and look, I think the business model now of cable news has become dependent on this conflict and this cultural combat. Mm. Um, you know, I call the the cable news channels now the kind of polarisation industrial complex. <laughs> They've realised that people want opinionated news. You've seen a real change in the DNA of CNN, for instance. CNN used to be in the middle. Uh, MSNBC was the sort of progressive counterpoint to the right-wing Fox, and CNN was in the middle. And what CNN found was that a lot of people in ever more polarized America just didn't want to watch that kind of impartial news anymore. And I think, you know, Jeff Zucker, who's now the head of CNN, who came from NBC, he was a producer of Donald Trump's, um, executive producer, I think, of, of Donald Trump's, you know, reality TV show. He got this very early on. And, you know, if you watch CNN now, uh, even in the daytime, some of its anchors who have been traditionally very straight are now delivering these kind of anti-Trump monologues. In the evening, it becomes a kind of anti-Trump version of the pro-Trump Fox News. So the whole metabolism as news has changed, and it's become far more partial and partisan as a result. Extraordinary, really. Um Kayla, do you think that in Victoria that uh, that people might want more positive non-combative coverage of the crisis in in your state and is that perhaps what is fueling a degree of of animosity towards mainstream media i think it's actually what we're seeing in victoria is and this is thoroughly unsurprisingly because you know this is happening online and the internet is global exactly the same thing that nick just described as happening in the u.s right i mean i think we can't you can't analyse what's happening in terms of the response to Daniel Andrews and the reaction to the Victorian Press Gallery without considering that, you know, people are watching Donald Trump, who from an Australian perspective has just a, a sort of terrifying level of incompetence that we're witnessing and everyone looks at Daniel and then people look at Scott Morrison, a lot of people have sort of views on his performance um, and, and certainly um, views on whether he's, you know, taking the steps that are necessary to support um, Australia through a, the recession that we're facing. Um, and so within that context, people look at Daniel Andrews and then think, well, this is the only guy who seems to be addressing the concerns that I have. And so how dare you try to take him down as if he's as bad as Trump, as if he's as bad as Scott Morrison. And I think the solution to that um, in the Australian context is not that we should criticise Daniel Andrews less, it's that probably we should criticise Scott Morrison more. Um, but I do think there is a sense that it, what used to be considered sort of the the objective centre, the kind of, I think, slightly mythologised position from which journalism is meant to take place. Um, anything that is sort of taking a bit of a centrist stance or uh, is seen as being biased against the Premier and there is a, a big appetite for reporting which is sort of, is more partisan, is on his side. It doesn't necessarily have to be like positive, it's not that people want fluff pieces about the pandemic. It's that people are people want reporting which reflects their views. And if you see on Twitter, some of the responses to um, journalists in recent days has been people referring to themselves not just as consumers of news, but as customers of news. Um, as you know, I'm a customer of your paper, and therefore your paper ought to reflect my views, which is kind of an interesting and potentially slightly troubling way to think about how news should be framed. 
It is, and it certainly sounds um, as though there could be some analogies with what Nick was uh, referring to as CNN there. But, Nick, can I come back to you now? The events of, you know, the last week have been pretty dramatic, pretty extraordinary, really, even in US terms. Um, Trump's back in the White House, his actual COVID status, who knows? Has he got it? Is he still infectious? Is he not? Um, He still wants to hold this debate with Joe Biden next week, and he's tweeted that COVID is no worse than the flu. How's that playing out for him, do you think? Politically, I think this has been reinforcing rather than transformative. Um, what we've noticed throughout the year, really, is how little the polls have shifted. So many people have seemed to have made up their mind. Donald Trump is such a polarizing figure that those people who are still undecided, well, we think they might not even vote. Um, the polls have shifted in the past week, but not in the direction that Donald Trump wanted. After that debate with uh, Joe Biden, where he was deemed to have been so aggressive, Um, The polls have actually got stronger for Joe Biden nationally and in some of the key states that he needs to win. Um, So we haven't seen that much polling since that triumphant return from uh, Walter Reed. Um, We haven't seen that much polling since last Friday. But, you know, it's 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 looking pretty good for Joe Biden right now. And of course, you know, again, I go back to this idea that this is a defining moment. I mean, for the Democrats, obviously, Trump getting the virus and the White House becoming like a kind of meatpacking factory in rural America as a COVID hotspot, you know, that for them uh, exemplifies his mishandling of the crisis. If you're a Trump supporter, of course, you see him as facing down coronavirus, being an American strongman, showing that it's been exaggerated and all the shutdowns were unnecessary. It is a deeply polarizing event, but at the moment, those who agree with Joe Biden uh, seem to outnumber those who agree with Donald Trump. Now, whether that actually translates into an electoral college victory, given the vagaries of the electoral college system, uh, who knows? But one thing I would say is that I I think Joe Biden will win uh, the national poll, and and the Democrats tend to do that. We've had five elections in the 21st century, the Republicans have won three of them, but they've only won the, the popular vote in one. And so do you think that the media is finally beginning to push back a little bit on Trump's mishandling of this virus? I mean, for example, the one thing that stuck out for me this week was the spectre of Australia's very own Miranda Devine, who is a columnist with the New York Post, speaking to a Fox presenter, essentially extolling the virtues uh, of allowing the elderly to die of COVID, which seemed to shock the Fox presenter. Is there is there growing unrest in media circles, um, even in Trump's favoured media, to his underlying message and indeed those who peddle it on his behalf? I think Trump has been slammed from the beginning by the papers and the news channels that generally go after the Trump administration. Um, it's been a very critical coverage of his handling of, of the coronavirus and you know, understandably so, given that we've got more than 210,000 Americans who actually died from it. And as the president has himself told us, he downplayed the severity of the virus, even when he knew about its fatal potentialities. So I don't think there's been a real shift on this. Um, I think from the beginning, those parts of the media that are supportive have, have, have um, remained supportive and those that are critical have remained critical. 
Right. Kayla, back to you. The discussion about Victoria and Dan Andrews in some ways is kind of what we're seeing in the, in the US towards the media. It's partisan, full of constant shouting, trolling, um, and there often seems no chance or perhaps even desire for common ground to be found. Do you sense that journalists in Victoria, particularly those who cover state politics and even and perhaps even those outside of Victoria, are worried about where this might end? I'm not sure that they're worried, and I actually think we probably should be more worried. I think the, the the issue with the way that this media criticism is occurring in Victoria at the moment is a lot of it. There's, it's a sheer volume of it. Um, if you if you post you know anything that could be considered um, remotely critical or sometimes asking questions of the government, the, sometimes the volume of response you get is fairly overwhelming, and a lot of that is as you say, hyper-partisan shouting, not interested in the other perspective. But there is a section of it which is legitimate criticism, which is legitimate concern, which journalists ought to be listening to and ought to be, you know, addressing because I don't think that we've been, I would never say that our industry has been perfect at this. Um, And I think that when we have these big seismic shifts that, you know, show us losing, a lot of people losing trust in, in the media, that's something that we need to address. But the problem is that that, specific criticism can often get drowned out by the wash of it. Um, So do you think that journalists do actually recognise that they themselves have any role to play? I think that some do, but I also think that when you are facing this kind of level of um, overwhelming pushback, um, it's kind of human nature to retreat to your camps a bit. Um, I'm sure that uh, I don't know whether you would have seen the um, video that was circulating on social media in Australia this week, which was... um, a bit of a hot mic at the start of the press conference in Victoria with journalists essentially complaining about um, some of the feedback. And the main thing they were complaining about was the the criticism they receive online of why don't you question Scott Morrison in this way? And the answer to that is that they're the Victorian Press Gallery, they don't see Scott Morrison. He's currently not allowed it. You know, we have closed borders currently um, and they're not the Federal Press Gallery. They're actually a different group of people. But I think that sometimes there's kind of a... a a lack of understanding um, on behalf of the readers that journalists who live in Melbourne are also locked down, they're also stressed out. Um, Could they be doing a better job? All of us could always be doing a better job. Are they doing as bad a job as some people online would suggest? Absolutely not. I don't think that's true. I do think, you know, the media environment in Australia is um, uh, pretty limited. We don't have a lot of um, diversity in media ownership. We do always need to be aware of that and conscious of that and conscious of the fact that we do need to um, make sure that we're showing a diversity of uh, opinions and information that we're not just following the lead set out by the biggest media company in the country mm. but also <laughs> I think that the way the feedback is currently coming in from the public is in such a format that it is just going to encourage people to close ranks and I think that's what which would be a pity of course because there, there should there ought to be time for reflection I assume you mean. Yes, that's what kind of concerns me. I kind yeah. of, I do understand that that um, reaction because it is fairly overwhelming and really the only way to cope with it is to turn it off. Mm. That's not ideal for the people who have concerns with the media, legitimate concerns sometimes, and that's not ideal for journalists who all want to do their best job. All like Anyone who's ever worked in the media knows the absolute dread that you feel if you've got something wrong or you think you may have got something wrong. Mm-hmm. No journalist actually wants to get it wrong. Um 
And so I think that if we can get back to a place where we can actually have that conversation and say, like talk openly with readers about the kind of stories they want, the kind of things that they may feel are misleading, the kind of information and best ways that we can can put that out, I think that would be really healthy for media and healthy for democracy. I just don't think we'll get there, Um, certainly not in Victoria, until the lockdown's over. And so, Nick, um, just finally to you, if I might, since the 2016 election when CNN and other media copped a shellacking for giving what most thought uh, was too much time to Trump to... um, to, to spruik his wares and therefore blaming those media agencies for his ascendancy, I think we can all agree that the US media has drifted further into their respective ideological corners. Do you think that the American media, whatever you define that as, journalists based in the US, let's say, have had the desire and the time to critically consider their own practice in relation to the coverage of politics and in relation to the coverage of COVID for that matter? Well, I hope that happens, especially in relation to 2016. Look, in in my book that I just written, When America Stopped Being Great, I talk about better story bias from journalists. It's not a liberal bias. It's not a conservative bias. It is a bias in favour of what story yields the greatest journalistic entertainment value. And the way that it impacts campaign reporting is journalists tend to gravitate towards the the candidate who gives them the best storyline. Now, in 2016, Donald Trump gave us the best storyline. In the year 2000, George W. Bush gave us a better story uh, than Al Gore. Who wanted a third term of the Clinton administration with that, with its uh, uncharismatic understudy as the president? Um, the idea of a Bush restoration was was much more interesting. In 2008, Barack Obama was more interesting than Hillary Clinton. We decided, I think, collectively, as a as a journalistic community, that the first African-American president would be more interesting than the first female president. I think, you know, a lot of our coverage reflected uh, that bias. So I think it's trying to get away from this idea of news as entertainment. And I think it relates as well to COVID. Uh, I think we, we tend to look at journalistic entertainment sometimes more than journalistic elucidation. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think the coverage has been pretty good of COVID actually. Um, I wouldn't say that of the 2016 campaign. Okay, look, we've run out of time. I thank you both very, very much for being with us today, for your time. Um, Nick, you've got a a vast presidential debate to cover, and Kayla, I'm sure you've got another Dan Andrews press conference coming up. So thank you both very, very much for your time today. My pleasure. On that note, I'd like to thank Kayla Walquist and Nick Bryan for being on Fourth Estate, and thank you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and we thank the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We're back next week with more, but in the meantime, stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockwell. My name's Monica Attard. Thank you for listening.